when we look at disease prevention and optimal health of what we're drinking and eating, we can't ignore alcohol. The truth is there is no safe or recommended intake, zero. There are seven cancers connected directly with alcohol, especially breast cancer for women. The hormonal disruption, the endocrine disruption is huge. One drink a day, seven drinks a week, that's moderate drinking right there. And that, we're talking five ounces. I was not pouring myself five ounces of wine. Bartenders are pouring five ounces. So most drinks right there are already two drinks. It doesn't take much to be in that moderate drinking. Once it's past those seven drinks, five ounces, that's then heavy, risky drinking. Hello, and welcome back to the Your Great Podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. As you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, I created this space for those on their healing journey, seeking out inspiration and tools because on my healing journey, it was pretty lonely. And I was diagnosed at 34 with Crohn's disease. I had horrible periods my whole life, which were chalked up to endometriosis by my OBGYN. I didn't really talk about or commiserate with others about my painful periods. I just thought it was life on planet Earth. And then when I had Crohn's, the last thing you want to talk about is your poop with others. And the fact that I was 34 and my gut issue started when I was probably 30, maybe earlier. I definitely had IBS in my 20s, stress and inability to process my emotions. Looking back, there was a lot on my plate. Let's just say that. But anyway, I was alone and felt lonely and there was nobody to show me the way on healing my autoimmune disorder or that it was even possible because the rhetoric in the medical system is that it's unhealable and diet doesn't matter. We know that is not true and it should be illegal to even utter those words, period. Anyway, I created this space for those outliers seeking their best health and wanting to be inspired. And I work with a protocol that couldn't be more outlier if I tried. Yes, the bean protocol It is fantastic. It is amazing. I have helped thousands of people all over the world and my mentor even more in her 30 years of practice. So there you have it. Well, I am really excited because as you know, if you are on the protocol and you are healing a health imbalance, I suggest removing alcohol. I had a long-standing relationship with alcohol. If I look back, alcohol was my coping mechanism for how insecure and out of place I felt in the world. Once I healed, I cut it out, of course, for many years, I started to reevaluate my relationship to alcohol, only to discover that my body never liked it, and I knew that, but the outcome of feeling a little bit better about myself and a little more carefree kind of overshadowed the fact that my body was in absolute rebellion. When I got healthy, my gut was healthy, I started having some here and there, and I realized that it allowed me to be around anyone. And my body still didn't like it. But I realized I don't want to be around anyone. I want to be around people that fill my cup, that I fill theirs, that there is this beautiful exchange of love and care and creativity. I didn't want to numb out and just be around anyone anymore. So alcohol really doesn't have a big role in my life. It's probably a few times a year at max and I never drink more than one and seldom even finish that. So I have really shifted my relationship from 
occasional here and there to mostly not at all. And I have to say, I love it. And if you're listening to this and you're like, no way, I love alcohol. It's the best. I hear you. I was there. But I think as we get more quiet and in our bodies and embodied, we kind of realize that maybe not so much. I am excited to present this podcast to you that I did with Jolene Park, who is a speaker and she's a leading authority in gray area drinking. She has a TEDx talk that has been viewed more than 300,000 times. She's a functional nutritionist and a health coach. And she also provides courses for health professionals seeking to be a gray area certified coach. If you're wondering what the gray area drinking spectrum is, it's social drinkers, it's moderate drinkers, it's sober curious drinkers, it's problem drinkers, it's alcohol use disorder drinkers, dependent emotionally and physically drinkers, addicted drinkers. They all kind of fall under the banner of gray area drinking. I definitely fell under that banner. I was the social drinker. I never drank at home. Sometimes I did take a shot of tequila before I would head out, knowing that I would be social and needing to feel relaxed going into a situation. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jolene Park. I had the best time chatting with her. She is just the loveliest and so passionate and just a wonderful, wonderful human. Jolene, welcome to the Your Great Podcast. I am so excited to sit down with you and chat about all things alcohol, gray area drinking, social drinking. How do we know we have a problem? I obviously in the protocol, I remove alcohol for the healing process, but a lot of times after people reach their health destination, they'll kind of like slip back into habits, drinking and adding sugar and whatever. But I would love to hear from you today. How did you identify that your gray area drinking was potentially a problem? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation and being here with you. Such a big question that opens up this this whole conversation. I drank like most women around me drink. The book clubs, the girls' night out, you know, the, the fun wine tasting kind of thing. L- loved red wine. And certified as a functional nutritionist in 1999. So I knew what I knew about functional medicine functional nutrition and also drank like, you know, a lot of women drink. And so I took a lot of breaks over the years under kind of the umbrella of a wellness break, a paleo challenge, you know, that that type of thing. And so I flew under the radar really, really easily. Nobody really blinked an eye because they knew I was in wellness and nutrition. Yeah, I'd watched your TEDx talk and I got a sense of it, but I wanted you to share with my community because so many people are social drinkers. First, let's define what is gray area drinking. How do you define gray area drinking? I define gray area drinking is it's the space between every now and again drinking and every now and again drinking is literally like a handful of drinks over the course of a year. So it so really special occasions. Special occasions. You're having a te- you know celebrating at a wedding. A couple months later, maybe going out with a group of friends, having a glass of wine at dinner, like it really is every now and again. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is our stereotypical image of that crash and burn, rock bottom, catastrophic, the wheels fall off the bus of our life. There's this gray area between those two extremes. Most people don't fall into into those two end category extremes, but where most people fall is within that gray area, which is where I fell. and. 
and I drank like that, you know, for, for many, many years. And I would stop saying, I can't keep drinking like this. I don't feel good. It drops my blood sugar. I'd feel so queasy and woozy the next day because of that blood sugar, you know, hypoglycemia from too much wine the night before. And then I would just say, I can't keep doing this. I'm going to stop. And then I would stop. It, you know, it wasn't that hard stopping, but what was hard, I wasn't having withdrawals or anything like that. But what was hard was then this little quiet voice in my head after a couple of weeks or months would say, well, why am I being so restrictive? I don't need to be so all or nothing. I can be a social drinker. So I'd go back to drinking. And after doing that over the years, you know, many, many times, I finally got to this place. So this is just a Groundhog Day, a place in my own, in my own head. It was very clear. This Groundhog Day is not going to change. It's just going to, you know, continue. And I just don't want to keep doing the same Groundhog Day. And, and I've just decided I'm done. I'm just going to stop for good. And there was no rock bottom. There was no catastrophic event that last day of drinking. It was just an internal mental decision of, I don't want to keep doing this anymore. Did you, from that day forward, no longer identify as a drinker? Like when you, would you, would you say to people, I'm sober? Or would you just say, no, I don't drink? Like how, how did you move forward to really solidify that choice? I, that's such a good question of thinking of those early days, because what was interesting is a lot of people actually didn't ask. <laughs> and, you know, and I wanted people to, because I was really excited at that point. Like I was like, I'm making this wellness decision. I'm not going to drink. I actually saw Mark Sisson and I had seen him as the, you know, paleo. I followed that whole paleo world that he said, you know, he wasn't drinking because it was really helping his sleep. So I really was proud of it. I was looking at it like as a wellness hack, kind of a, a, a biohack. And, and so it's like, yeah, this is just another, another step in my, you know, the wellness work that I do. So out of the gate, I didn't necessarily have that, oh, the shame or the stigma or what are people going to think? I'm like, this is just a cool wellness hack that I want to talk about. I want people to ask me about it. It doesn't serve me. The work I'm doing, what I'm interested in. And so I didn't really have that, you know, embarrassment socially. And people also didn't ask is, is the truth. Well, and I think that fact that somebody who is sober might feel embarrassed is part of the problem. You know, the fact that we have this socially acceptable poison available to everybody. And if you don't take the poison, there's something weird with you versus... Oh, yeah, I'm opting out of poisoning myself tonight, guys. Cool, cool, cool. But it's such a social elixir and nobody, like there really isn't a safe amount of drinking as far as the human body goes, right? It's a toxin. And then the byproduct of filtering that toxin is even more toxic to the human body than alcohol itself, right? So this interesting kind of social element of, oh, you don't drink. I remember that. I worked in an industry that was very pro-alcohol. And everybody were really are functioning social alcoholics is what I used to call them. So when I saw your gray area term, I was like, oh, that's really interesting because that's the area. I always thought of it as functioning social alcoholics. You'd mentioned that, oh, you know, you would from a stressful day, you would wind down with a bottle of wine. I definitely put that into kind of like this really interesting area of drinking because so many people do that. And so many of my clients did that before they became my clients during the pandemic, where their way of coping with fear and anxiety about this unknown factor or stress was to drink it away. I find it a really fascinating response. You gave up the gray area drinking. You were super excited about it. It felt like kind of a health hack. 
There was no repercussions in the social world for you of you not participating in alcohol? There really weren't. And I will say this is the biggest conversation that I have with clients. So I'm not minimizing it. It's not that it's, it's, it's such a concern. You know, it really is a number one coaching conversation when I work one on one. So I'm not minimizing it by any means, but my experiences and, you know, working with clients, the experience, what I've found over, it's been, this is my ninth year now of not drinking. There were people, I can think of two people, a friend and a family member who made comments. So it's not that people don't make comments, mm -hmm. but what, and I see this reflected in my clients too. What I find is when people actually comment about us not drinking, there's already, again, my experience, people, other people might have different experience, but my experience is there's already something a little sideways within that relationship. And so they're using that, the alcohol opportunity to come in with a bit of a dig sideways, but they would have used anything. <laughs> it's just alcohol is there and available. And so there's that little slight or, or a little dig. That's been my experience. Whereas people where the relationship is, you know, aligned and there, are, there isn't any kind of strange dynamic there. For the most part, people are, you know, in our life who know us are very supportive. And also people who may not know us as well, just even with acquaintances or like at a networking event or just saying, you know, I, I, I quit drinking. There's, there's, and I'll say this in public, there's no dark story behind it. I just, I, it, you know, made the decision to stop. And often, usually what happens is people's response will be, oh, I'm curious. Tell me more. I've kind of been thinking about that myself. I have, they respect it and they want to know more. There is the, the anticipated fear socially of what happens, but I find that it's more of the anticipation than the actual reality. And it really doesn't play out unless potentially there's already a sideways dynamic going on. But I find most people, most adults don't ask other adults and really harass them and grill them about what's actually in their glass. You know, people don't know if, if it's club soda or if it's vodka and soda. You know, people don't and they don't really go in and, and analyze in depth. We think that, like we kind of spin that in our head. So I don't want to minimize, you know, alcohol was a problem. Absolutely. It wasn't just like, oh, this was so easy. I just decided one day. I was absolutely using it to manage anxiety. And I, you know, I loved red wine. I loved that initial effect, but it was too easy and too frequent to be drinking a bottle of wine on many occasions. And so I, it was absolutely a problem. That's why I chose to quit. But, but again, most people, when it comes down to it, they really don't harass or badger of, you know, are you an alcoholic and, and what's going on and why aren't you drinking? Right. The language I heard you use probably really helps. You're not saying I'm sober, which, which has a very different connotation than I quit drinking. I quit drinking is a choice, not because you had a major problem, but because you realized it was becoming maybe a problem or that you were using it to cope instead of learning how to sit with feelings, learning how to sit with fear and anxiety or having ways to wind down that didn't include needing to kind of numb out with alcohol. Right. But I think the terminology is really important because I do think that that's what people struggle with is how do I communicate that I don't drink, not because I had a problem, but because alcohol just doesn't suit me. I'm real honest about that. Yeah. I, I've found it's, it, you know, I'm being very on. I like to just say I quit, mm -hmm. period. <laughs> and you can just kind of see people like, whoa, what's that about? And then I, you know, I say, look, there's, I, there's no dark story. There was no, 
nothing externally catastrophic, stereotypically what we think of as like fear and loathing in Las Vegas. That was not my story. You know, I'd always say my alcohol memoir will be very boring. <laughs> it's I quit. <laughs> I, I quit. But the way I was using alcohol was problematic. It was very easy for me to, I'll have a glass. Ah, screw it. I'll have another glass. I'll have another glass. And frequently and easily the pattern of, of finishing a bottle on a very frequent basis. And I'm very honest about that too. And, and often I can see in people's eyes when I'm talking with them, there's just that recognition of like, yeah, I, I identify. And and that when clients come to me, they'll say, I identify with your story. Mm-hmm. This is how I drink too. I don't have a rock bottom. I function. All my new clients always say, I function really well. I'm like, that's good. You don't want to get to a place where you don't function. Most people, you know, gray area drinkers, that's the characteristic is they are functioning. But there's that still small voice that's saying, I'm drinking too much. I, I can't keep drinking like this. They're They're feeling the effects physically and emotionally, but able to hide it yeah. with those around them. And, but, but internally, they know it's too much. What are the health implications of drinking like that, do you think? Or do you know? Or, yeah, like mind, body, gut health. Like what, is, what are the downside? Let's just say you don't have a problem. You're not an alcoholic. But what are the downsides of drinking like that on a regular basis? Well, like you mentioned a minute ago, there is no safer recommended healthy intake level of alcohol, which I always like to go back to that because we always want to hear, you know, I was doing that when I was drinking, but like you want to hear the story to kind of measure of, well, I'm not that bad or I don't, you know, it's like measuring. And and the, the truth is there is no safer recommended intake, zero. So we start there instead of trying to say they're worse or I'm not that bad or or that type of thing. And so with that and where those studies come from, and it comes from some of the the dietary guidelines in 2010, there was some papers put out. They were looking at, when we look at disease prevention and optimal health of what we're drinking and eating, we can't ignore alcohol. And so this data was termed the, the gray area of drinking, looking at nutrient intake. And so it's, you know, to your question, it's everything. There's seven cancers connected directly with alcohol, especially breast cancer, you know, for women. These perimenopausal years, my clients are 35 to 55. I mean, the hormonal disruption, the endocrine disruption is huge. And and we're not even talking bottles and bottles of wine. We're I'm just talking a drink or two on a regular basis. So one drink a day, Seven drinks a week, that's moderate drinking right there. And that, we're talking five ounces, not Olivia Pope, big fishful size wine glass. So one five ounce glass of wine every night for seven days is moderate drinking. That it's That's actually not low. Did you say five ounce? Five ounces of Do wine. Do you know anybody who drinks five ounces of wine at a time? When I, I was not pouring myself five ounces of wine. And when I go out, bartenders aren't pouring five ounces. So most drinks right there are already two drinks. It doesn't take much to be in that moderate drinking. Most people who are drinking regularly, but when we're honest about it, then they tip over into once it's past those seven, seven drinks, five ounces, that's then heavy risky drinking. So we have this, this stereotypical thing of like it just like we're just swimming in vats of wine. And it's not that it really is, you know, glasses on a, on a frequent basis. But all of that adds up. There's seven cancers connected, including breast cancer. The hormonal disruption, the gut microbiome disruption, the neurotransmitter disruption is what my TED Talk is on and what I've done a lot of work on. So really, any physiological function 
it, the alcohol is a wrecking ball. But then the emotional piece with, you know, I, I also look at the somatic work and the fight, flight, freeze, collapse mechanism, the, the trauma in the body, the issues in the tissues. Alcohol disrupts all of that. It stunts that. It gets in the processing way of being able to discharge and move through those emotions that need to be moved through the spiritual connection. You know, there's there's work out there about we're, we're drinking, you know, we call it spirits, but then also the potential of spirit, the end, like what is, when people say, I feel like it wasn't myself, like something came over me, like that's powerful in a spiritual energetic realm. And so, yeah, I mean, body, mind, spirit, alcohol can, can be, can be quite destructive and it doesn't take, it doesn't take much. And that's been the problem. We've had this traditional historical view that it's just fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And that's, it's not the case. It doesn't take much. Yeah. And I would say that even regular social drinking is not a, it's not inert. There is no aspect of drinking that is inert, that doesn't have some sort of effect. And I think also we have this conception, this misconception that, that cancer happens and that it can't happen from so little. And the reality is, is we don't know how much it takes. It could take that one drink or it could take that 10 drinks for 10 years. Like we don't know. I think there's a lot of genetic factors there of why some are more susceptible. I was always really sensitive to alcohol, but because it was so much the world I lived in and it was going out with clients and drinking and bottles of wine and that I was like, well, I should be able to tolerate this. And I think that's another interesting conversation, too, because I know a lot of my the people that I work with, they know it doesn't feel good for them. But it's such a part of the social construct that they don't know how to get out of it either and how to have a conversation with their friends. But I, something else you mentioned, which is really beautiful, that if you're hanging out with people that don't support you or have an issue with you not drinking, then that relationship is probably already not authentic and it's in, its, in the container, right? Yeah. And, you know, what I want to say to that, too, because I, 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 again, I recognize p- people will say my industry is such a drinking industry. The city I live in, the country I live in, <laughs> you know, my neighborhood, it's just everybody drinks. But I'm talking to a lot of those people. And the, the th- it's like we have that perception in our mind, but we're not talking with each other in the group. So it's like it's this snowball that just keeps going down. But if we would stop and sit for a minute and talk about it, most of the drinkers in the group would say, yeah, I worry about it. I've never told anyone about it. Mm-hmm. So the internal conversation, if people are drinking excessively, getting drunk, where they're, they're having internal conversations. They're, they're just not mm-hmm. talking about the group that they're drinking with about that internal conversation. Well, because it's confidence, right? You have to have, feel confident in your choice to have those conversations or to even be open that conversation, right? It truly never dawned on me when I was drinking. I mean, I hung out with, you know, a, a big drinking group. We were, it was kind of the sex in the city <laughs> group, you know, the young professionals. Most of us weren't married, a lot of disposable income, entrepreneurs, attorneys, the whole thing in our early 40s. And it, it never dawned on me that somebody else might have been feeling, some of my friends might have been feeling that way. When I quit drinking, many pulled me aside and said, I respect that you're speaking out about this. And, and then when, when I started doing podcast interviews and talking publicly, the women, you know, coming through the door for coaching, saying, your story is my story. Like, this is me. It never dawned on me. I thought like what you're saying, you know, it's like we're out in groups, we're out with our coworkers, everyone just drinks like this. 
And it's like, no, most people who are drinking like this often have an internal struggle. And that's why the language of the gray area resonates. It's, it's, it's an inviting language as opposed to addict, alcoholic, that end stage language. Yeah. Quitting alcohol, it's interesting because I don't put myself into the, I, I don't drink category. But on the average, I would say I more land in the category of a couple times a year, I'll have an alcoholic beverage. But 99.9% .9 of the time, I sit down to dinner, my husband will order a drink and I'll sit there and I'll just be present with it. And I'll be like, no, I'm, I'm good. And that's kind of how I ended up not drinking is just every situation I put myself in, I would sit with myself. I would really connect with me and go, what do you want? Do you, he's doing that, that I'm compelled to want to join him, right? I'm compelled to want to share with him in that way. And I'll sit there and the answer is always no. Every time I get still with myself, every time I get present with my body, the question I ask is, is this my medicine? And the answer is always no. And to me, that's how I ended up being choosing not to drink. And also knowing, I think as a, as a health professional, the more I learned about the literature, the more I realized two things. One, I don't need it to relax. I don't need it to be more myself. And the more I'm sober and the more I choose out of drinking, the more I realize the people I'm around that I never wanted to be around, that I could only be around them because I was drinking or having alcohol. And that was numbing out the sense of their energetics and my energetics. It just dissolved all boundaries. And as a person who's sober, connected in my body, I can actually sit in a room and feel the presence and feel the interactions and feel the ones that are genuine and the ones that are not. And it allows me to sift through the noise of who I actually want to be around and who I don't. Whereas unique drinking, tequila unique, would be hanging out with anybody, you know? Now it's way more picky not being a drinker than I was before. And I don't know if you noticed that as well when you, when you got rid of alcohol, if suddenly you realize there were people in your life that the only way you could be with them is with alcohol. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So you're a classic example of an every now and again drinker. And yes, that intuition of, and many, many clients will say that too, of they're just like, I don't want to go to this PTA meeting. I don't want to go to this networking thing, this thing, you know, but I, have, I drink to get through. And that's, we need to pause for a minute with that. Because if we're needing to anesthetize ourselves and medicate and drug ourselves to be around certain human beings, we need to stop. What are we doing? <laughs> We're adult. And at, at the sacrifice of our physical health and in a real severe way, you know, with, with cancer and those types of things and, and the emotional toll. Yeah, all of that. Like those are, those are really big statements of, and, it, and I work with clients on that a lot too of, you know, oh, I'm going into this social thing this weekend. I, it's, you know, I'm going to have to drink. And it's like, let's stop for a minute. Do you, do you want to go to this thing? And sometimes, you know, there's obligations where it's just you have to go for whatever reason. But I always start there, like, do you want to go? And that always gives people pause. They're like, oh, what, what do you, I just, of course, it's like, no, you, you, we can have some choice here. <laughs> and then, you know, if you have, have to go for different reasons, then we can talk through and kind of script things. But exactly what you're talking about here, of coming back to our own intuitive knowing of making choices about people and environments and what goes into our body, what we surround our body with. And again, if we're in an adult situation where another adult is really strongholding that or, or berating us, or that's 
good data to know about. Like we're autonomous adults and, and human beings here. And if so, if, you know, the hold of alcohol really is over our head, which when I break it down and we really get in and, and, you know, pierce it apart, usually that's not the case. But if that really is the case, we, there's some things, you know, for people to look at. But when we get honest, often that's, you know, that's, that's not the case. I call it social bullying. It's an interesting thing to me. I feel like we need to normalize people taking care of themselves, regardless of if it makes sense to you or not, to, to an other or not, right? So whether they're eating differently, not drinking, not eating sugar, amazing how many of my clients get socially bullied by family members or friends for not eating sugar. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's normal. You should be able to eat sugar. That's too restrictive. You know, these conversations around us taking care of ourselves, we're talking about alcohol today, but honestly, I can apply it to so many things that social bullying that happens. If there is somebody in your friend group or family who eats like crap, I'm all for leaving them alone as well, right? Like mm-hmm. not bullying them into trying to be healthy. But I don't, I do see this conversation as yes, alcohol, but yes, let's zoom out and look at all of the things that people kind of socially bully themselves or others with, whether it's you should eat healthier. Should they? Should they? Maybe they shouldn't. Should you be drinking? If you don't want to, no. That's the, the answer is absolutely no. If you don't want to eat sugar, the answer is don't eat sugar. But it does stem back to us. How confidently do we move into the space? For me to say, I'm not a drinker. I didn't have a problem, but I'm not a drinker. That, to me, allows me to assert this new identity that I am no longer a drinker, right? I no longer participate in social drinking. I no longer go out to drink. I no longer go to bars to drink. That is not part of my personality and or, or who I'm cultivating. To me, it all starts with the confidence. Like you had the confidence to say, I don't drink. I quit drinking. There's confidence there. And the confidence there allows other people to go, well, tell me more, right? But if we're unsure of why we're doing it, if we go, okay, I'm quitting this because it's not good for my health, but I really like it. Then I feel like there is also that space open for somebody else to step in and go, oh, come on, tonight, just join me, you know, because there's that little uncertainty of like, oh, so I feel like to quit alcohol, there really has to be that confidence with it. Would you agree? Absolutely. And and this, you hit it right there. This is the root of this conversation. So when we say, when I talk about, you know, going out and socially and how do I deal with this, exactly what you said right there, that's the root of it. So, you know, I quit gluten eight years before I quit drinking and I've gone through my periods of sugar-free and, and worked with you on the bean protocol and have gone now nine years without drinking. So you're absolutely right. And there's people who don't eat meat or gluten. And so it's all the same piece. I've talked with you about it too, like with the bean, because I get so excited about the bean protocol. And then I've told my personal chiropractor and people, and immediately they're just like, oh, no, I can't eat bean. And I'm like, no, no, no. And, and I'm like, I have no charge around alcohol at this point, nine years in. And I have no, you know, it's like if somebody's paying me and we're working together, we're in there, we're scripting it. But to go out in the world, like I don't need to tell him, but I want, but I'm excited about the beans. Kind of like I was excited when I first quit drinking about alcohol. And so I get it. Like I really have that empathy and, and I understand. Like it's not just, it's like, oh, it's so easy for me. I just so confidently make a decision and go out. But the point of this is, is what I found over and over with my experience and with clients is that when I front load the conversation, when I step into a room and make a declaration or a statement, you've got to hear about the bean, this bean protocol. I don't drink alcohol. So that then sets it up for the exchange of the spotlight to be on it. But if I don't shine the spotlight first, 
and set up that whole, you know, kind of front load it. Other people don't either over and over. And it's hard because we want that a part of some recognition, some validation, some a conversation, some camaraderie around it, if we're, you know, some excitement if we're just starting something like not eating sugar or alcohol. And it's what you said. Of it's just that kind of an internal confidence. There's this just resolute, like, this is what I'm doing for myself. It's what I know I need to do. And it's really not up for debate conversation. You know, and I'm, I'm not going to start a debate or conversation. And it works out pretty well. But when I bring it up, then things can sometimes unfold in, in ways that then make me question, oh, maybe, well, I don't know, should I eat these beans? When there's that immediate kind of, oh, I can't do beans. And the same thing can happen with alcohol. Same thing can happen with sugar. Yeah. If there's, if there's uncertainty, I think that's where the room for somebody to kind of like, whether it's drinking, whether it's eating for health, whether it's eating legumes, whether it's quitting sugar, if there's an uncertainty then that's where I think someone can can kind of play into that uncertainty. Oh, come on, we'll just tonight have a drink. Or, geez, I don't think you should be eating beans. Or, come on, sugar is fine. What What do you mean? For me, along with the fact that I was over drinking, I was using sugar also to feel good. So all of these things that we use to feel good, alcohol feels good on the front end, not on the back end. For me, it always felt good on the front end. And then later I'd be like, oh, I feel gross. And then, or the crash in blood sugar and how that affects your mood. So these things, and not everybody has an issue with drinking. I would say I would. I was also a gray area sugar eater. I didn't have a problem, but I had a problem. I was like, oh, I, I feel sad. I'm going to treat myself. Oh, I feel bad. I'm going to treat myself. It's like this really interesting sugar. I would say the big, the big ones in my, I don't know if you see this as well, the big one in my practice is like alcohol. That one people can get behind amazing how many people can really commit to dry January, which I am curious about that. If you have clients struggling with quitting alcohol for whatever reasons, they get together with their family for Thanksgiving, everybody loves to drink, and how am I going to get through the holidays and whatever the conversation is, how do you feel about dry January? What are your thoughts around that as a practice? I think any time the brain and the body has a break from alcohol is, is positive, it's good. So I know there can be debate around 30 days isn't enough. And, you know, there's people who are really in like the sober recovery and, and 30 days is it, it's getting too trivialized. I think there's there's huge benefits and I've seen it on lab work. I've seen it subjectively and objectively. The positive shifts that can happen in the body within 30 days is nothing to to turn a blind eye to. So I'm all for it. I took a lot of breaks. I, you know, I stopped for 30 days. I'd stop for months. One time I stopped for 18 months, a year and a half. And then I went back and I'm glad I had all those periods because mm. they add up instead of drinking throughout and not stopping. So I say, go for it. Take month breaks, take, you know, take time off as much as you can. It's, it's good for your brain and body. If you have a client struggling that's working with you to stop the social part of their drinking, they've stopped drinking at home alone when they're cooking or with their family when they're cooking, but they still haven't been able to really drop the social part. What is your advice to them? Well, this is this goes back a little bit to, you know, the conversation about just that confidence and, and that resolute peace. And you also named it that behind it on the front end is there's positive effects. So the first 20 minutes or so of the drink is, is, is all positive. There's that it slows the mind down. There's a little bit of that muscle unclenching you know, in the body, there's a, a bit of a euphoria, kind of relief, relaxation. 
which is positive. We need that. The, the body and the mind need to step off the busy track of the mind always ruminating and thinking and producing and achieving. The muscles need to unclench. So we need those positive effects. So it's not as simple as, as this is just a mental thing of like, oh, be more confident and make a resolute decision. My work is very much physiologically based. And so, and part of that physiology then is the physiology of trauma. And are we running on a fight response, a flight response, or a collapse? And lifting the hood then, and, and then what's that pattern? What's that dynamic of what are we constantly running from, constantly in motion from, always wanting to, you know, be in the fight? And so that's the polyvagal work. It's, it's the physiological work of working with the nervous system. This is no small, small task. There's a lot of unwinding, rewiring to do physiologically because the, the, the effect is positive. But if that's been the only way to get that positive kind of way to relax and slow the mind down, we need to, you know, dig deeper and really hear the story. What's going on? What's been our modeling and training to cope? And then there's also the biochemistry of, of blood sugar. I know myself, when my blood sugar is balanced, I feel so much better mentally. You know, when my gut is healthy, with boosting some of the neurotransmitters. So I work at it physiologically that when we're regulated physiologically, then this question of like, how do I overcome kind of that social situation? It's not like kind of a mental checklist for me as much. We can script things and how when, you know, somebody says, do you drink? Like I'll talk with clients of how are we going to answer that? But going into that physiologically regulated, that's been the missing link in this work. Traditionally, historically, it's been cognitive work. And, and I think what's really been missing with alcohol is, is the physiological piece. And that's, that's what I speak to and train others on. Do you give them exercises to get into a relaxed state or do you teach them how to do that in their day-to-day -day life so that if they're coming into a social situation, they're already in that relaxed state that alcohol would normally give them? Both and. Yeah. So, you know, my piece is, is we're putting deposits in, in our hoping bank account, so to speak. So that we're not going, going through life where the edge is so sharp that we, we have some buffer. We're not on fumes, just going through things moment to moment. Those deposits are always going to help. So having some regular practices, but then also it, we can use them SOS, you know, in the moment. So, so it's both and, but I'm also very thematically kind of oriented with it's not just kind of a formula of everyone listening right now. Here's what you need to do. Do these three things. There, there's lots of options out there, but it depends on biochemical individuality and just your own kind of constitution and how you're wired with your stress response of what might resonate and doesn't. And it doesn't mean that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, oh, this is interesting data working with your system, your organism. Here's maybe a better match for you unique versus somebody who's, you know, listening. But each resource can be working on toning the polyvagal nerve or soothing the amygdala, that alarm response, you know, in the brain or feeding that good microbiome to settle and just have that optimal, you know, good bacteria in the gut that then feeds the neurotransmitters. So I work on, on all biochemical, kind of emotional, energetic. And then how I work with clients is what happened? What did you notice? 
And if you tried something and you felt more agitated or you hated it, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt my feelings. That's okay. That's just good data. Mm-hmm. So, and if you something where people really light up and they're like, oh my gosh, like the beans, perhaps <laughs> not, you know, where they're just like, I, I've had clients where they think, well, this sounds kind of silly and come back and they're like, I feel that grounding kind of calm sense that you're talking about just from eating beans three times a day. But we don't know it until we actually try it. Like we've got to play it out in the field, put it into that curiosity experience. And and the body's going to give us really quick feedback, biochemically, emotionally, energetically. Absolutely. Honestly, I'm now 10 years on the protocol. And that was one of the original things that I noticed. Healing Crohn's disease was a long journey. But the first step I noticed, because I was stuck in fight or flight, and alcohol was a coping mechanism. Smoking pot was a coping mechanism, although I didn't love it. It gave me anxiety on the back end. And But in my early 20s, these were coping mechanisms for the fact that I had trauma, for the fact that I was stuck in fight or flight. So I do think that drinking is an interesting manifestation of a bigger conversation. It's oftentimes not just social. It's oftentimes regulating something else. So what you're saying is not as easy just to quit because so often it's regulating other things that we haven't yet touched on. Exactly. But, but then the food component. So I did 10 years of therapy before I got sick where I was going to a therapist once a week and I had tools, but it still wasn't getting to this really locked in sensitive nervous system of fight or flight that I was in. Fight, flight, freeze. You know, I was either frozen and unable to do anything or I was fighting. I was in these various stages, but never just calm. Like when people said meditate, I'm like, I can't even sit still emotionally. (laughs) Like emotionally, I'm boom, boom, boom. So when I was super sick and I'd gone through a lot to get to where I was when I finally found the protocol. I mean, when I finally got to the protocol, I was 90 pounds and just an absolute mess, digestively nutrient deficient. Started eating the beans and feeling for the first time in my life after a couple months on it, this calm. And I was like, what is that? What is that? What is that pause? What is that calm? What is that space that I've never experienced before? If that had been the only thing the protocol gave me, it would have been worth it. The fact that I was able to go into remission and create a healthy body again is profound. But that calm, that rounded, vagal tone, had never heard of it before I started the protocol. Things were calm in in the digestive tract. To me, that is a, the fact that food is that, is that powerful is, is profound because all of the tools I had learned in therapy were great, but I only began to use them and access these emotional places that I had been unable to feel once I could actually feel what it felt like to be calm in my body. I could feel sadness. I could feel anger or regret. I could feel all of these other things that just felt like this fiery ball of confusion before. So I love that you are noticing in your practice that using the soluble fiber is having this feedback effect because I see it everywhere in my practice where people are just like, I feel calm. I feel grounded. I don't even need this or that or the other thing that I used to use to regulate. To me, that's it still blows my mind that food is this powerful and not from every mountaintop are doctors and other people yelling at going, 
get your food right, man. It doesn't mean that you don't need a medication. Let's just say that right off the bat. There's all kinds of things that a good medication could be used for. But if we have this foundation of health, how how amazing would that be? What a gift. So what I want to say here is I want all, you know, all of my clients and those listening who who are you know, working with this alcohol question to re-listen, go back kind of the two minutes of everything you just said here. And this is what I'm talking about, about the difference of when it resonates in your body. So I talk with people all the time and they're like, yeah, I've done therapy. I diffuse oils. I do yoga. I journal. And I'm like, does it help? Does it work? And they're like, well, what do you, what do you mean? When something works, you hear a description of what you just shared. And everyone listening to, you know, what your share there, it's like you light up. It, there's this, there's this, it lands like it, it's a physiological match. And after hearing that, people listening are like, wait a minute, I want that. I want that calm. I, what, what are these beans? You know, so my <laughs> audience who will be listening to this, who may not know, not everyone knows about the bean will be, I want to know more. And so that's where, that's where I'm working with people. So it's not about one, two, three. Here's a formula. It's about when there's a physiological match, you hear it in people's telling of the experience and how they tell it. And, and I agree. You know, I started working with you two years ago. Sugar was my first. I really wasn't a drinker early on in high school and college. It was my late twenties after a breakup that I was like, what have I been doing with Skittles? This is wine is quick. And, you know, I've been messing around with this sugar. So sugar was my entry and then drank kind of late 20s into my early 40s until I quit and then went back to sugar like many, many clients will do. And the beans has, has been it for me. Like, I don't crave sugar. I don't when I keep my you know blood sugar. But then I keep coming back to you saying, unique, then I don't stick with it. <laughs> And you're just like, just keep sticking with it. Yeah, it's not a path of perfection. I think a lot of us with trauma response have this perfectionist kind of approach to things. It's keep going back, keep doing the work and also lifting it up and going, what is the emotional component that binds me to this action that I don't enjoy? What is that? You know, what is the emotional component to it? I think drinking has an emotional component. To me, it's shifting the balance of power as well. I am really passionate about powerful women, powerful women being embodied. So I have clients who go, sugar, is sugar bad all the time? And I'm like, sugar is only bad if it has power over you instead of you having power over it. And I would go say that goes for drinking as well. Yes, drinking is a poison and it's never a great idea for the human health, human body. Let's just set that aside. But if you are somebody who has power over it and you're choosing it a few times a year for this, that, or the other thing, the difference is it's you having power over it. It's not a coping mechanism. You're going, yes, I'm choosing into this and I want this. Sugar, Not I tell my healthy clients because I get a lot of clients coming to me for longevity of wellness. They want to be healthier. And we talk about the shift of power. So if sugar owns you where you can't not have it, there's the problem. Mm. You can shift the power so that you can choose in and out of it. That's a very different relationship than uh, I can't help myself. I just have to reward myself. I had a hard day. It makes me feel better. Or I had a great day and it makes me feel better. Or everybody had dessert, so I had dessert. That sense of like no power, no responsibility. Let's shift that. If you 
powerfully choose into it and you want it and you feel amazing about it, that's a beautiful experience. Enjoy that. But if you are powerless against it, then let's talk about that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm the latter of once I start eating sugar, I just kind of go into, you know, roll into the ditch with it. <laughs> and I and beans are the thing. Again, I started studying nutrition in 1999 and paleo, the protein. I know that helps to stabilize blood sugar, things like glutamine, apple cider vinegar. I've done somatic experiencing work. Like I know the things. And the bean protocol for me, for what you're talking about, that calm of just because it's the anxiety of why I drank, just kind of that inner, my mind won't stop. It's not that I'm having a panic attack, but it's just that constant ruminating worry about, I mean, just give me something. I'll, I'll run with it. And beans stop that. And then it's the conversation, like what you were asking about alcohol. What happens then is I'll tell somebody about it and they're like, Oh, that does not sound or you, I can't. Do. And then I'm like, okay, what am I? And then, and then I call you because I've fallen up and I'm like, why? I just have to, because I know, I know the feedback within my own body and how I feel and how it settles my nervous system in such a profound way that nothing else has. So again, I'm not sitting here up on this pedestal like, oh, it's so easy. Just tell people you don't drink because. I will stumble with the, with things like sugar and beans, and yet I have such evidence and such experience with my body that when I don't eat the sugar and I eat beans regularly, it's one of the best nervous system regulated resources in my personal toolbox. Which is beautiful, but it's not socially acceptable. People like Dan Buettner are trying to normalize beans in his studies of the Blue Zone people. Just a cup a day will elongate your lifespan but not just lifespan, your health span as well. So there's all of this research, but as a background in paleo, there's probably this part of you that fights that information a little bit because your training is so deep, right? And the paleo world has been so demonizing of legumes for such a long time that there is this bias. I trained as an AIP coach as well because anything autoimmune, I was really interested in, in having in my tool belt. So I recognize where the information and the fear comes from. So I think falling off of something when there's kind of like this innate training of like, oh, this isn't really that good for me. It's not socially acceptable to roll out and be up, you know, so it's understandable. I kind of like working with a fringe protocol myself because I find that the people that are actually interested are curious. And I would say any of anybody listening from your community, from my community, the most important piece to this whole journey is curiosity whether it's quitting alcohol, would you agree? It's curiosity. How do you feel? Do you feel better with it? Do you feel better without it? If you feel better with it, why? Do you feel clear without it? You know, to me with beans, I feel better with beans. I can't believe it's been 10 years. Like I still am like, how did that happen? I've never stuck to anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, how, do you, how did I stick to it this long? But it's curiosity. I feel like that is the gateway to really unraveling all of these health questions that we have is curiosity. I couldn't agree more. And that's how I work with clients and how I train my coaches, my grayer drinking coaches. That's the foundation of this. I love that we, this is where I go with clients. See, the conversation starts where we started, the social piece and going out and everybody drinks and look where we are. And this is, this is where I like to, to end up. We lift the hood and this is what it's about. This, it's the curiosity, the somatic question, the soma with our body of, What's feeding us? What's nourishing us? Who is, is feeding us? Are we feeding that's not, you know, nourishing in return? 
And yeah, I, you know, I'm like you, I admire when people can take kind of that revolutionary stand, that radical stand and go a little bit against the the majority. But I have it in me because I've struggled with this. I, I just recently, you know, moved to Charleston. It's like I, I'm meeting some practitioners and I want to tell them about the BAME protocol. <laughs> and it's tripped me up a little bit. Uh, so it's not that yeah, it's hard sometimes to really hold that. We know, like I've listened to all the interviews with you and Karen Hurd. I love the science. It's just so compelling. And I cannot geek out enough on it. And then I meet a local chiropractor and I'm like, let me tell you about the beam protocol. And they're like, oh, that is not, you can't eat beams. And then, I can't, and then I kind of back off and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I know what I know, but it's so again, I, I get it. It, it's it's not always easy to just know what you know and and hold your ground with things like alcohol and sugar and and beans but but I do know my experience when those things are in my body what happens one way or the other I want to recognize it too what you're saying I have clients who will entirely turn their health story around go back in for a check-in with their doctor and their doctor will be like, oh, no, no, you can't, you can't, you shouldn't be eating this way. And they'll come back to me and be like, oh, they want me to change my diet and they want me to do this and this. And, and I'm like, well, let's just pause for a moment. Is what you're doing working? Well, yes, but the doctor said, and I'm like, they don't have any nutrition training. So it's more coming from a bias. There's that part of it. But also it's fear of what we don't know, or it's fear of what is popular. Like what's popular is don't eat beans. Beans are bad. So many people just kind of have somebody that has influenced them and they know a top line of the science. Beans are bad. Don't eat beans. They're horrible. And that becomes kind of like in an echo chamber where everybody's repeating this poor advice. I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. Well, beans may not be that great for you, but you know what? They really work for me. Or yeah, I can understand why this looks funny to you, but it's really helped my health. I really, I love it. I love it. You know, that's kind of how I went when I saw my doctor five years later, and I was in great shape. And the last time my GI saw me, I was like a little scrawny toothpick wearing my daughter's skinny jeans and hair falling out and skin falling apart. And then I see him in a yoga class and I'm strong and I've got muscle and I'm looking great. And he's like, unique. Oh my goodness, you look amazing. What happened after you left my practice? I started eating a high fiber diet with legumes and his eyes just glazed over. Yeah. And I was like, and on top of that, I'd love to offer my services to your client. If anybody ever is looking for like a diet to help them through like this autoimmune disorder, I'm your person. I haven't heard from him. Yeah. People are afraid of what they don't understand. Yeah. So two things I want to say here. This happens with alcohol. It keeps people drinking in the gray area potentially for another decade or, you know, years with therapists and doctors who brush aside and they're like, oh, you're, it's not like you're an alcoholic or anything. You don't have a problem. And it's confusing to the gray area drinker because the doctor and therapist is not in their head at three in the morning when they said they were going to have a drink. And now they drank, you know, handfuls of drinks and they're waking up sweating, anxiety, heart pounding. They have, you know, that piece in the, and that's their image that's in their mind that they're not communicating. And the therapist and doctor say, oh, it's not a problem. And it's confusing because it's like, I just woke up, my heart was pounding. I was so nauseous, wasn't communicated, but they're saying this isn't a problem. And often the doctor and therapist themselves are gray area drinkers. Most of my clients are healthcare practitioners. 80% of my private clients are therapists, social workers, doctors, nurses, acupuncturists. So 
you know, the other unspoken nutritionist, the other unspoken white elephant in the room here is the healthcare industry. Every industry drinks in the gray area, but the healthcare industry, we've really turned a blind eye and there's lots of gray area drinkers there. And the other thing I want to say about this piece of just kind of, you know, that curiosity, when we're more regulated, here's the irony, we're more able to be curious. This is a brain piece. It's a protective mechanism, the immediate shutdown, the immediate resistance, the immediate, no, I've changed my position. Again, this is a radical shift from my training in paleo, but that openness to the curiosity when our amygdala can settle and our nervous system can settle a bit, because we we can sit here and say, oh, be curious. And it's a somatic practice to have some curiosity and let things run through our system and notice what happens. But if we're in this constant protective fighting and bracing state, it's very hard to be curious because it's not safe. And so that's always interesting to me too, when people are, have that immediate defiant pushback, it's like, Ooh, there's let's what, you know, it, it's the nervous system is on high alert because it's hard to take anything else new in and be curious when we're dysregulated. When you're scared, think about that scared position. I really love that. Thank you for that. That visual of being scared is the absence of curiosity. It is a tightened, closed space where only reaction can happen. So that's a beautiful insight there. Yeah. Yeah. And so often we're clinging to what we know as a way to stay safe. So no, 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 don't eat beans. No, 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 don't, don't, you know, give up drinking, whatever it is, that safety, we're looking for that safe place of, of community recognition. We're okay when we're safe. Personally and professionally. Yeah. You know, this is why this stuff for, for people who are in the health, wherever, as a nutritionist, as a doctor, as a nurse, it can be a threat professionally uh, around alcohol, especially. It can be very serious if you've got an alcohol problem as a doctor, as a therapist. So there's a threat professionally or, you know, what we think we've been trained in and now all of a sudden beans just blows the whole paradigm <laughs> or even personally can be a personal threat. The more regulated we are in our nervous system, the more we have the capacity to pause and just say, huh, I'm going to chew on this literally (laughs) metaphorically for a minute and notice what happens next. I would say that I am the first person who is looking for a better way, always. I work with this protocol and I continue to work with it only because I see the proof. I see the proof every day and I see the results. But I'm always looking. I'm always out there, you know, looking through the scientific literature and following people I respect to go, can this be bettered? This thing that I'm working with, can it be bettered? I haven't found a better. Can there be different? Oh, totally. There's all kinds of different. If you have raging histamine, you might need something different. So there's many things out there that you might need something different before you can eat beans. I recognize that. But as a foundation of health and healing and well-being and and not just living well today, but tomorrow and the next day, I can't find anything to beat it. I started studying the Blue Zone from Dan Buettner a few years ago. It was like, oh, people who eat beans live longer and better? Okay, how are we going to beat these 100-year-old people living well and still they've got their mind working for them and their body working for them? I want that. I want to be an old person who's awesome. So to me, it's, it's, I'm curious. I'm not rigid holding to this thing going, oh, this is it. This is it. I'm more like, 
show me something better because what I got is pretty great. Yeah, me too. I've always been a questioner. I've always, yeah, I've changed position. I've changed my mind on different things because I'm always questioning. I'm a lifelong learner. And you have capacity for curiosity, right? I hear that from you, which is so beautiful. I love the work that you're doing. And I'm so excited that you're integrating legumes into your practice because I can't think of anything better. And I've found it with clients because, you know, the neurotransmitter work of, and, you know, the piece that neurotransmitters are manufactured, we have more manufacturing happening in our gut than in our brain. That whole second gut component and a healthy gut is so important. The with the the mind and our moods and and sometimes the neurotransmitter work can can admittedly feel you know some people a lot of people don't like everybody doesn't want to take supplements and then there's the expense of that and the confusion and just there's a lot of questioning when it really comes down to it I've supplements have always been in my background and my training but when I find the rubber meets the road when you know I'm really working with clients and doing trainings it can get sticky sometimes and beans are accessible. They're, they're, you know, the price point's amazing. <laughs> I do them just out of the carton, out of the can. I mean, I, I don't do any, it's, it's, I'm not a big cook and it's easy for me and, and I get immediate results, which is what I want and what clients want is where we notice something, you know, pretty, pretty swiftly. And, and I do with beans and I just love the science. I mean, I listen to you and Karen and I tell people, I'm like, I send them links somewhere. <laughs> Go listen to this. And I don't think 90% do. But but if people, you know, say they love the science and say they want data, listening to the mechanisms of what beans do physiologically, I, I just, I geek out on it. I, I could just listen to it ad nauseum. I think it's fascinating, but I think physiology is fascinating. A spiritual experience for me was getting to the point in my life where I started taking care of my body because how profound our human body is simply blows my mind. You know, I was always like, what's my spiritual practice? My spiritual practice is taking care of my human, incredible human vessel. For me, that's an incredibly spiritual experience. If health practitioners are listening, I understand that you have a course that will certify them to work with drinking in the gray area. Tell me more about that. Absolutely. So I am certified for health and wellness, board certified coaches for 30 continuing education hours. I'm also certified through NADAC, which is the National American Addiction Professional association for 30 hours. And I have been teaching other coaches and practitioners how to work with gray area drinkers. There's there's nuance with it. It's different than traditional kind of sober coaching or health coaching. Gray area drinkers, it's a very unique demographic. And so really how to assess staying in our lane professionally. We're not addiction therapists and, and working with that later stage addiction level, but then really working physiologically with everything we've been talking about with the neurotransmitters, with the somatic side with the amygdala and change and working with the brain on change behavior. So this is the, I think it's the sixth year, fifth or sixth year that I've been training coaches. And I have another cohort coming up this spring. All the info's on my website, which is grayareadrinkers.com. Amazing. And when did you say the next course is starting? It'll start April, 2023. Thank you so much for being with me today, for chatting. You're incredibly wise and I'm excited that you are training others out there to begin the conversation around alcohol because I think it is a social norm that needs to be questioned and changed. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed our chat and I hope it gives you something to think about on your own health journey and what role alcohol plays. Is it holding you back from getting 
your health to where you want it to be? Is it a crutch? Is it like me these days, which is I can take it or leave it. Sometimes I take it. 99.9% of the time I leave it. And I do not identify as sober. I identify as a non-drinker. So I hope this gives you some food for thought or inspires the next step in your healing journey. If you would like to find out more about Jolene Park, you can find her at grayareadrinkers.com. And if you just Google her name, you can watch her TEDx talk as well. Wish you a wonderful day, night, morning, wherever you are in this beautiful world. Thank you.